I'm an only child. Any, just by a show of hands, how many only children in here? Okay, a few. Is that just one? Is that it? Solidarity, Marie. Right? And I know there's a lot of like baggage with that. Like, oh, you're spoiled. Oh, you know, you you think the world's all about you. I, I have no shame in saying that being an only child growing up was awesome. Okay, there's a lot of perks, just to, to name a few. One is my stuff was my stuff. So I, I had a lot of friends in the neighborhood. My cousins were close by, the closest thing to siblings. And they would come over and they would play with my stuff. But I always knew that in a day or two, they'd go home. And I'd get my stuff back. I also, it was my space, right? I had my own room. And so friends would come over and, and uh, it was great. And but then when I would be annoyed with them, I would just remind myself, oh yeah, they're going to go home and I can retreat to my room, right? I know that all sounds selfish, but Marie knows what I'm talking about, right? It's a benefit of growing up as an only child. One of the, the, the other benefits is I never experienced, at least not firsthand, sibling rivalry. It was just me, right? Now, here's the kicker. I, am, I was an only child. I now have six children. So I understand now experientially what sibling rivalry is, is like. In fact, I intervened in a sibling rivalry situation just this morning. Right? And it's interesting, when we come to the Bible, we see a number of significant events happen around sibling rivalries. The story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son, for example. An older brother who is very obedient to his father. A younger brother who is disobedient and wayward. And Jesus tells this story. They're at odds with one another. The older brother is upset with the younger brother. And he tells this story to articulate that the gospel is for both brothers. It's both for the obedient, those who try to self-justify, and those who are wayward. If we look at the book of Genesis, we'll eventually see more of these sibling rivalries unfold. Consider Joseph and his brothers. He was beloved by his father. He was, let's be honest, a little annoying, and his older brothers couldn't take it anymore. They faked his death, sold him into slavery, and through that we see God's sovereignty in preserving his people even in difficult situations. We see more throughout the book of Genesis. We see Leah and Rachel. We see Jacob and Esau. And all of that, of course, starts with our passage this morning. Cain and Abel, the the first sibling rivalry. But the reality is none of us are strangers to rivalries, whether we're an only child or, or not. We, we see this all around us. We might be tempted to say, man, all of these problems would be solved if these people in the Bible just didn't have annoying brothers or sisters, right? But we, we know that's not the case. Consider what we're, we're seeing in our political world right now. And that's always really been the case, but it seems heightened, right? Just bitter rivalry. Consider the times where you're driving to work and someone you don't know, a complete stranger, cuts you off and you feel that bitterness welling up in your heart. Consider your your marriages or your friendships or relationships where bitterness can easily set in and conflict arises. None of us are strangers to bitter rivalry. And, and the reality is it's so common that we can be tempted to just say, you know what, that's a part of life. And never really ask the question, where did all of this come from? Where did this start? If you've been with us in the book of Genesis the last several weeks, we we know the answer. We know the theological answer to that, right? The last two weeks, we've looked at Genesis 3. Sin is the cause of this. 
But I'd submit to you that there's a little bit of a, a difference in focus in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, right? In Genesis 3, sin enters the world, but the focus is more on the vertical relationship with God. But now we come to chapter 4. We get to life outside of the garden. And the first story that we get tells us of sin and its effect, not on our vertical relationships primarily, though that's certainly a part of it, but how does it work out into our horizontal relationships with one another. And just by, by way of review, we've seen so far in Genesis, God has, has created chapters 1 and 2. He's created the universe and our world with the word of his power. The, the apex of that creation is man and woman. His image bearers made to reflect his glory. And then in chapter 3, in, in, in chapter 2, they're placed into this garden where they experience the presence of God's goodness, fullness of joy, right? They have a task to work and keep the ground, to be fruitful and multiply. Then we get to chapter 3, and the serpent enters in, deceives Adam and Eve, sin enters the world, and they're banished from the presence of God. They're placed outside of the garden. But mingled in with this banishment and these, these judgments that God gives is this promise of grace and hope. God tells the woman, Genesis 3.15, from your offspring will come one who will bruise the head, will, will deal a death blow to the serpent. And then we get to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. With that in mind, listen to what we read in, in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, here's what we hear in Eve's voice as chapter 4 starts. We hear hope. Is this the one? God has given me a son. Is this the one that God told us about who is going to reverse the curse? She's hopeful. But as we read on, her hopes are soon dashed because Cain rises up and kills Abel. And that's the focus of chapter 4. This morning, And as we look at this conflict between Cain and Abel, we're meant to also look inward at our own lives and our own hearts and evaluate our own bitter conflict. And, and just as mingled with the promise, with, with the judgment in, in chapter 3 is this promise we see also here, mingled with this diagnosis of our bitter hearts and conflict with others is the promise of God's grace and restored Relationship. So here's the question we're asking today. What is the root of bitter conflict? What's the root of bitter conflict? How does it progress in our lives? That's what Genesis 4 shows us. And as we walk through this, we want to see this in, in, in a four-step process. First, we see a worship problem in verses 2 through 5. Second, we see a pride problem in verses 5 through 7, which leads to a, thirdly, a hate problem in verses 9 through 10. And then finally, we see that this is a pervasive problem in verses 11 through 24. So number one, we see a worship problem. As we read verses 1 and 2, we get a bit of biographical information about Cain and Abel. She, uh, Eve conceived and bore Cain. And then verse 2, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So we have this firstborn son. Cain, he's a, a farmer, essentially, and then Abel, his younger brother, 
And he's a shepherd. He's a keeper of the sheep. And notice here, they're doing what God has called mankind to do. They're working and keeping and exercising dominion over the ground, even outside of the garden. Now, there's likely, we don't see this for sure in the text, but there's likely a natural rivalry here. You know, of farmers versus shepherds. There's only two right now, right? But I always think of S.E. Hinton's book, The Outsiders. Maybe you read that in high school. The Greasers and the Socias. Right? If you haven't read it, read it later or watch the movie. There's a sort of natural rivalry because of this, these differences in occupations. But the focus then is on this act of worship. We read on. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So Cain brings this offering. Now, this tells us that there is worship happening even right outside the garden. We don't know how much time has elapsed, but this was a habit of worship. We don't know exactly what this looks like. Adam and Eve would have raised their children up to worship the Lord. And so Cain brings this offering. And then in verse 4, we read of Abel's offering. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Now, do do you see the difference there between the two offerings? We're just told that Cain brings this offering from the field. But when we see Abel's offering, we're told that it was the firstborn and it was of the fat portions. In other words, Abel brought the best. Now, this wasn't codified yet, but if we read on in Exodus 13, for example, Exodus 23, we see that this was true worship, bringing the first fruits to God as an act of worship and and a, a way of acknowledging, all I have, God, belongs to you. So how does God respond? We read that he accepts Abel's offering of worship, but he rejects Cain's. And what's happening here is the deficiency of the offering for Cain is revealing the intention of the worshiper. Now you might say, well, that you get a lot. You're insinuating a lot from just a few verses here, Kevin. Well, this is one of the great ways of using the Bible to study the Bible. Because as we look at the book of Hebrews, we get a glimpse at what's happening here. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, verse 4, By faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So what's the difference? Abel offered out of a heart of faith and trust in God. He gave God his best. He offered freely, acknowledging this is the provider. I'm not going to keep anything back. Cain, on the other hand, Offered from a stingy heart, a a closed-fisted sense of unbelief. Therefore, his offering isn't regarded by God as true offering at all. To put it more simply, Abel was worshiping God from a place of delight. Cain was worshiping from a place of mere duty. Now, we might say, okay, well, what does this have to do with relational conflict. It seems like the problem's not with Abel for Cain, but with God. Well, it has everything to do with conflict in our lives, because when we're experiencing relational conflict, usually the first question we ask is, what did they do? What did I do? How do we reconcile? Those are important questions, but 
What Genesis 4 is showing us is that the most important question to ask is, how is my relationship with God? The the seed of bitter conflict in our hearts always begins with a distorted view of who God is. Think of the, the progression that we're about to see here and that we can honestly probably tell stories that we've seen in our own hearts. If God is not the chief object of my worship, then he becomes a means to an end. For Cain, I'm just going through the rope motions of doing this thing so I can get back to what I want to do. And if God becomes a means to an end and he doesn't give me that end that I want, I'm going to grow bitter inside. And if I cling to that bitterness in my heart, eventually that seed will germinate and grow and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and bitter conflict will come out. And if I continue in bitter conflict, this is Genesis 4, eventually I will do heinous things to get what I want. You see how it all starts with the question of worship. Cain ultimately had a worship problem. So the most important question you and I should be asking, first and foremost, as we're tempted towards bitterness towards one another, is what am I worshiping right now? Who am I worshiping right now? Tim Keller is very helpful on this. He's like the Yoda of identifying idols. And he wrote this wonderful book called The Prodigal God. He gives 20 questions for diagnosing the things that we worship other than God. I'm just going to give you a few of them. But think of, think of this. They'll be on the screen. These are some of the, the ones that I think are very common for us. We think life only has meaning and I only have worth if, number one, I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work. That's not worshiping God, that's worshiping achievement. Number two, life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. It's not worshiping God, that's worshiping power. Now we don't know the the, uh, details of this struggle for Cain, but I would submit to you those first two, achievement worship and power worship are at play in Cain's heart here. Or what about approval worship? Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by blank. And if you take that away or you threaten that, I get angry. Or life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm highly productive and getting things done. It's worshiping work, not God. Or life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth and financial freedom, and possessions, and comfort. What is that? That's material worship. Friends, whatever it is that we exalt above God, that worship problem in our hearts is the seed of bitter conflict. And so, like Cain, it is so easy for us to elevate ourselves and our desires, even if they're good desires. The problem is not always that we want wrong things. The problem is that we want good things, but inordinately. We want them more than God. And so like Cain, as we elevate ourselves and our desires, we need God's grace to show us as we ask this question, who or what am I worshiping? How is my relationship with God? Am I worshiping him out of mere duty or am I seeking to delight in him above all? And that then, if we don't Recognize that that leads into number two. We see this pride problem at play. 
in Cain's life. Look at verse 5 again. But for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Literally, you could translate this. It burned Cain exceedingly. And his face fell. The physical act of his body matched the condition of his heart. And this is not a face falling in depression. This is a face falling in bitterness. It's a looking away from God. He does not believe God is just in this. To give you an example, imagine your supervisor at work gave you a project to do. And you had a deadline. And you worked on that project, but you kind of threw it together last minute. Procrastinated a bit. You got it in in time, but then the next day you hear back from your supervisor, hey, listen, I need you to fix these five things, and I want you to have it on my desk by the end of the week. Now, you have two options in that moment. If you want to keep your job, you'd say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. You're right. I'm sorry. I kind of called it in on this one. I'm going to fix these things, and I'll get it back to you as soon as possible. Or, if you want to be unemployed... You could say, you know what, I'm not doing that. This is great work. What are, you, what are you talking about? You keep this, I'm not doing it again. To which your res- employer would just respond, great, pack up your things. <laughs> See, we wouldn't respond that way to our employer, but how easy is it for us to respond that way to God? See, that's what Cain is doing here. He is not responding in humility. He's responding in pride. And then we see in verse 6, God responds back to him, but he responds with a gracious question. He says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Now, obviously, God knows the heart of every single person. He's asking this to give him an opportunity to respond. But I want to point out something here. God identifies and the author identifies the problem here is anger. But we've said that this is a pride problem. So why would I choose the word pride instead of anger? Well, there's two reasons for that. First is all unrighteous anger is rooted in pride. It's rooted in an over-exalted view of self and a diminishing view of God. Cain thinks himself the better judge of an acceptable gift than God, so he gets mad when his judgment doesn't align with God's. So the root of anger is pride. The other reason is because if we say an anger problem, I think a lot of us have in our minds a type of person, right? We say, oh, that person has a temper. They have an anger problem. And we, we kind of attach anger to a personality type, right? And we say, I'm not, I'm not angry. I don't get angry. I'm a cool and collected person. I'm laid back. That's a misunderstanding of anger. If we understand anger is rooted in pride, we have to be honest with ourselves because all of us have pride problems. So if you're here and you're just like more of a laid back, uh, of a laid back disposition and you think, I don't get angry, think again. When you don't get your way, no, you may not explode, but you get upset. Right? You get angry when your pride is attacked. That's why it's important for us to identify the root of anger as a pride problem problem and then notice I love how God does this it's very similar to chapter 3 God knows the answer but he asks the question not to scold but to give an opportunity for Cain to respond rightly with repentance and faith 
And this shows us how gracious God is to us, right? When we're tempted with bitterness, when we recognize we have that worship problem, that pride is settling in our hearts, God gives us a way out. Think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We reflected on this a few weeks ago. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's what God's doing for Cain right here. Why are you angry, Cain? He knows why he's angry. I'm giving you an opportunity to recognize your pride and your exalted view of self so that you can repent and come to me. And then God doesn't just give him this gracious question. Look on again in verse 7. He also gives him a warning. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, when he says if you do well here, he's not teaching that we're saved by what we do. Do well here means if you recognize and repent and turn to me, you'll be accepted. But if you don't, You'll be devoured. And here God personifies sin as a wild animal. We reflected on temptation a few weeks ago. I'm convinced that the Apostle Peter had this verse in mind when he said in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Now imagine what would happen if a, I know this is very hypothetical, but if a lion were on the loose in Waltham this morning and somehow it wandered into this room, what would we do? We'd, I, we'd freak out, right? Get the kids out. There's, where are the exits? Let's get out of here. No one's like, you know what? I, f- I think I can take it. I think I can take the lion. I've been working out and, you know, maybe we'll tag team it. You go for the tail. I'll go for the neck. No, we would, we would be gone. Now, what would happen, think about this, if a one-month-old lion cub were to waltz in here this morning? Different story, right? I'm not a cat person. That's an understatement. But have you seen how adorable a lion cub is? Can we pet it? Maybe we can keep it. That, that would be great. Look how cute this thing is. Simba, right here. Right? But, and I'm no zoologist, but you know what happens to, to baby cubs? They grow into lions that kill you, right? See, God is warning Cain, and Peter is warning us, and the Scripture is constantly telling us, you cannot domesticate your pride in your sin. You can't play pets with your sin. It will devour you. If you don't recognize the root of bitterness, the exalted view of self, the pride in your heart, and repent, then it will grow until it completely devours your relationships, your own heart, your relationship with God. This means that we should be, friends, constantly asking for God's help to reveal our pride problems. Prayerfully reading the scriptures with the help of one another in gospel communities and DNAs as a a church family We recognize Cain is alone here. Remember what God said? It's not good to be alone. I wonder what would have happened if if he went to Adam 
and said, Dad, I'm really struggling with, with this. What would have happened if he sought community to help him with his sin? We don't know. But for us, we must do battle with our pride. Charles Spurgeon says, The demon of pride was born with us, and it will not die one hour before us. We too must hear his invitation and heed his warning. Because if not, that pride will then grow into a hate problem. And that's number three. We see a worship problem, a pride problem that has now given birth to a hate problem. We come to verse 8. Cain spoke to his brother, to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. There's a footnote in the ESV that says this, what, what may actually be said here is he told his brother, let's go out into the field, which would mean this was a calculated event, and he kills him. He doesn't hear God's gracious invitation. He doesn't heed God's warning. Instead, he cultivates that bitterness and pride until it overflows into this act of murder. You see, friends, pride is never honest about internal sin. It always seeks to pinpoint the blame on someone or something else for all our troubles. That's how pride works, because we're exalting ourselves. So we surely can't be the ones to blame. And you can almost hear the thoughts going on in, in Cain's mind, right? Abel thinks he's better than me. He thinks he can be God's favorite. He, he thinks he's great because he's a meat guy and I'm a veggie guy. I'm the firstborn. I, I don't deserve this. I don't have to put up with this anymore. I'm not going to stand for it. Everything would be fine if he wasn't around. And you see how he welcomes the enemy of sin, that crouching enemy, cultivates this bitterness, and it forms into full-fledged hatred. He destroys a fellow image bearer. And he leaves the corpse in the field. We see James 1.15 come full circle here. Evil desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. And to make matters worse, in, in, in verse 9, we see that Cain shows no remorse for this. He even vocalizes his hatred. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You notice what happens here? He goes a step further than his parents, Adam and Eve. Yes, they sinned great, greatly. They even blame shifted. But they never lied to God's face and said, I didn't do anything. God says, where's your brother? He says, I don't know. Lies directly to God's face and says, Am I his babysitter? Am I my brother's keeper? And friends, the answer to that question, by the way, is a resounding yes. As image bearers, we are to take care of fellow image bearers. We are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. And then we read in verse 10, God says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God says, you can't run from this cane. You can't hide your sin out in the field. And this ground that was cursed because of Adam's sin is now polluted by the blood of the first murder victim. And what happens right as we get outside of the garden? We see mankind plunge, plunge deeper and deeper into bitterness and sin. Now at this point, we may say, okay, Kevin, I get it. Worship problem, pride problem, 
But I, don't, I wouldn't say that I'm a hateful person. And I'm defini- I've definitely never murdered anyone. So isn't this escalating things a little bit? Are you really saying that I'm a murderer? No, I'm not saying that. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ does say that in Matthew chapter 5. He teaches on anger. And listen to what he says. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus just widened the barrier, didn't he? Listen to what Ed Welch says on this. He says, Jesus has enlarged the boundary of murder so that it includes all kinds of anger. The only difference is in our choice of weapons. Some use guns, others use words. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So no, you may not have killed your brother and left him in a field, but have you ever called someone a name? Have you ever harbored bitter thoughts in your hearts because they think different than you, vote different than you, because they got on your nerves, because they didn't accord to your plans? Have you ever rolled your eyes in a demeaning way to somebody? It might sound extreme, friends, but, but Jesus says you are a murderer. You have committed that act in your heart. And the reason Jesus is so hard-hitting is because he wants us to have life. He wants us to make the the connection that a life of self-exaltation and pride and hatred leads to death in every area of life. So yes, all of us have a hate problem. And then as we read on, we see that this worship problem that turns into a pride problem and a hate problem becomes a pervasive problem. Number four. Look at verse 11. This is Cain's curse. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So let's look at the the curse of Cain for a moment. Notice before in chapter 3, the ground was cursed. Not Adam or Eve directly, but now it's a step further. Cain himself is cursed. And what happens? This ground will no longer yield fruit. He he has to go farther away from God. And he says, this is something that I can't bear because the people around will will see and recognize. They'll, They'll kill me for what I've done. Now it's important to note here that this is not Cain's repentance He's not, he's self-interested in this. I don't want to die. 
But God in his grace says no, by no means. No one's going to kill Cain. He puts this mark on Cain. There's a lot of speculation. We have no idea what this mark was. But we know it's something that tells everyone else not to kill Cain. It's God's special, gracious protection on him. And friends, how gracious is our God to even Cain, this murderer, to show grace to him and extend his life. But the most devastating part of this is verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which means wandering, east of Eden. One chapter after the garden, we see Cain pushed even further away from the presence of God. Then as we look at verse 17, we see this genealogy, and we're going to have to pick it up here a little bit. Uh, when we see genealogies in, in the Bible, uh, I think a helpful illustration is thinking of the fast-forward button. Right? We've just looked at a very uh, you know, intense, dug into one part of the story. Now we're zooming out, we're hitting fast forward, we're jumping forward a bit to see what's happened. But there are a few things to note here. As Cain's family grows, we actually see glimpses of good. We see a city being built. We see this creation mandate being fulfilled. We see cultural growth. His family is growing, economy is growing, music and engineering are happening. These are good things that grow along with the wickedness. And the emphasis here is on the pervasive and growing nature of Cain's bitter conflict. It wasn't just him and his brother. It affected everything around him and the generations after him. This is why the text zeroes in on this man we meet named Lamech. And notice this. Lamech not only surpasses Cain's wickedness, but he brags about it. Lamech, too, has a worship problem. We read in verse 19 that he takes two wives, which means he completely ignores God's design for marriage. We we read that he, too, has a pride problem as he brags about his violence. He, too, has a hate problem as he seeks to kill others. Look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Friends, it gets far, far worse before it gets better. As we look at our own lives, we are meant to, to see the pervasive effects of our own bitterness and conflict. Sin is never alone. We're tempted to think that, right? This is just going to affect me. No, it always works its way upward and outward. Notice the vertical effect on relationship with God. Cain is now even further away from God's presence. John Calvin says, the more a man shall lift himself up, the further he shall go from God. There's not only the vertical effect, there's also the internal effect. If you harbor anger and jealousy and bitterness in your heart, it robs you of your joy in the Lord. And we also see the horizontal outward effects on others. He kills his brother. His generations continue to plunge further into sin. We see this in our our own lives, damaged relationships, trust eroded away. And friends, if we were to end here, if chapter 4 were to end here, this may be the most downer sermon in the book of Genesis. But God, in his grace and mercy, doesn't end chapter 4 in verse 24 
we get a glimpse of hope in verses 25 and 26. There are hope, there is hope for bitter souls like that of Cain and, and for us. Cain or Lamech don't get the last word here. God preserves a better way, a way for those who call on the name of the Lord. Look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now let's stop right there. Eve is an unsung hero of this story. She begins with hope in the Lord's promises. She sees that hope dashed before her very eyes. And then at the end of chapter 4, God provides another son and she's hopeful again. Her hope in God's promises is far greater than the devastation of sin around her. God provides Seth. And we see verse 26. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Seth is born. You say, who is Seth? Well, let's hit the fast forward button again. If we fast forward from the line of Seth, we eventually get to Noah. If we hit fast forward again, we eventually get to Abraham. And then to David, and do you know where we end up? We end up with Christ, our Savior. The promise of Genesis 3.15, the one who will crush the head in the root of bitter conflict. And Jesus came, and he did not have a worship problem. He came as fully God, fully man, and he worshiped the Father fully and perfectly glorified him till the end and he did not have a pride problem Paul tells us in Philippians 2 he humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross and he certainly did not have a hate problem he loved his own to the very end friends he even loved his enemies you see in Genesis 4 Christ gets the last word not Cain Hebrews 12 24 helps us understand this a little more it says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, it's the blood of Jesus, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, friends, Abel's blood cries out murder and pride and bitterness and conflict. Abel's blood says those things prevail. But the blood of Christ cries out and says, no, 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 no. Those things don't prevail Christ has paid the debt for those things. Redemption prevails. Grace prevails. We'll sing this song in a moment. I love this song. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. We're meant to see that at the end of Genesis 4. What's the price of our redemption? The blood of Jesus. What's the Father's plan? That he would bring many sons and daughters to glory. Grace unmeasured love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. Jesus' blood speaks a better word to you and I in our bitterness, in our pride, and in our arrogance. So friends, I'd ask you as we close, have you believed the gospel, this good news of the better word of Jesus' blood? You don't have to cling to those idols anymore and harbor bitterness in your heart. You can cling to Christ. You don't have to walk in pride anymore. You can walk in the humility of Christ. 
You don't have to immerse yourself in bitterness anymore. You're forgiven. You can freely forgive and immerse yourself in Christ. Friends, if we let him in to our hearts, to our conflict, we'll find that his grace for us in Christ is far more pervasive than our own bitterness. Let's pray together.